This week's Rethink Retail podcast is brought to you in association with Emarsis, part of SAP. Trusted by over 1,600 companies worldwide, Emarsis's impact-driven industry solutions give power to the marketer. Emarsis knows that marketers don't have time to chase after flashy predictions and trends for the year, which ultimately don't lead to revenue and growth. This is why Emarsis has launched Unpredictions, marketing priorities powering 2022. Request a demo or check out the ebook at emarsis.com. Hello and welcome to the Retail Rundown podcast. I'm your host, Julia Raymond Hare, and happy NRF week to all of our listeners. If you're going, be sure to say hi to us. A lot of our team is currently at the big show, so we'd love to see you there. And joining the show today is Simeon Siegel. Simeon is the managing director and a senior retail and e-commerce analyst at BMO Capital Markets. I'm sure a lot of you know him or have heard of him who are listening in. He began his career at Goldman Sachs and has since been named a rising star of Wall Street by Institutional Investor, a rising star of equity research by Business Insider, and has been named one of the Wall Street Journal's top analysts. Welcome to the show, Simeon. Wow, Julia, I'm waiting for the day where that just intro starts as my friend, Simeon. So we'll, what what to aspire to. But go ahead. great to be here. My Simeon. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's, it's great to have you on. We have so many mutual contacts. And so when we had our first call, I was really excited. You have quite the interesting views, sometimes more contrarian. So it makes for a really interesting conversation. But before we hop into today's topic, just curious, are you also attending NRF this week? It's kind of a personal question these days. <laughs> I, I it honestly is. <laughs> I am ashamed and sad to say that I am not. We are uh, we are dealing with the reality amongst our my children right now. So so I am sadly going to miss the in person, which hurts. It hurts. But looking forward to being back in real life in a big way. It does, and we'll have a lot of opportunities at Rethink to have some uh, virtual sessions and some things that will recoup some of the lost time at NRF because we're seeing it here as well. But we will be there, and I hope everything gets better uh, with the kids and everything with COVID because I know it's just crazy right now. Moving on to today's topic, this topic is not new to our listeners. I think we've talked about it many times before, but today we have a little bit of a different viewpoint that Simeon is bringing, and that is on the D2C. So D2C continues to be touted as the way to do modern retail. Not only does the model allow brands to cut out that middleman, D2Cers are skilled at creating fans of their brands through data-driven loyalty analytics, and you can think of the Warby Parkers, Glossiers, Casper Mattresses, Dollar Shave Clubs of the world. They have all been so successful, so much so that tech companies like Shoppable are helping legacy brands and CPGs develop their own D2C-like models as a means to compete. And it would appear then that the benefits of the D2C model are somewhat endless. But Simeon is here to break down the news to us that D2C might not be all that it's cracked up to be. In fact, that was the title of the report BMO published late last year. It's really interesting. I took another read this morning. I'd like us to begin there. So Simeon, can you start by providing brief intro to the report and then sharing some of your key findings? I was waiting for that sound effect, the dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so <laughs> as the Grinch shows up. There so comes. I love this topic. I think it's so important. It's so interesting. It creates many friends for me and many enemies for me, depending on which room I'm in. But I think the reality is we have to remember omni-channel was the word beforehand and omni-channel pre-pandemic was used to remind us 
that e-commerce is a thing. Throughout the pandemic, we found that omnichannel just became synonymous with e-com. And so what we did, what my team did, we, we planned on doing a two-week research report that ended up turning into a six-month, banging our head against the walls because of all the strings we kept pulling. But what we found was the conversation of stores versus e-com got even larger to simply this notion of going direct versus wholesale. And the surprising finding was that companies pivoting to direct did not see that expected lift in revs, did not see the expected lift in gross margin, did not see the expected lift in operating profit, and didn't see the expected lift in operating profit dollars versus the others. And so that just triggered, again, this is like this notion of we started pulling these strings that didn't know existed, and it was just very interesting. And so we'll get into the details, but the main takeaway that we had was the largest brands in the world, the ones that we know so well that are touting this push direct. I agree with everything you said, right? I'm not going to pretend like I don't. You get to be closer to your consumer. You have the data. You control the brand image, et cetera. But somewhat by definition, those are the brands that made their own legacy by embracing wholesale. Those are the brands that got incredibly healthy and incredibly large by embracing wholesale. So what I would say is let's internalize that every decision needs to be made very carefully rather than painting a broad brushstroke. And whether you're the largest brand in the world, figure out the right wholesale partners to be a part of, as opposed to walking away completely. But just as importantly, if you're emerging, I think there's a dangerous message hitting the newest brands being told wholesale is a bad word. And what I want to throw out is there's a lot of very powerful wholesale partners. So I think this is going to be some interesting topics for us to dig into but it works across the spectrum. And it's interesting because you said some of the largest brands in the world made their legacy by embracing wholesale. And so in a way, this is backtracking a little bit, but you said they wouldn't be where they are without wholesale. And so is it part of the equation that you can't just erase in many cases? Exactly. I think you put it perfectly with the middleman. There's a very, if we go, the notion of digitally native brands embrace this idea of there is a middleman in a wholesale operation. Cut out the middleman, and you make a lot more money. And what we found is that middleman actually isn't that expensive. And that middleman is very effective. So this idea, if you think about universally, like department stores played a very important role in building the cachet of all of these brands. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, you can't delete it from their history. And I would argue they shouldn't delete it from their future either. It doesn't mean to, that they shouldn't hone in and target who the right partners are. But to simply argue that a partnership equals another fee and another fee equals something bad, that's, I think, too simplistic. Mm -hmm. I could see that. And you made a great analogy in the report, and I kind of summarized it in my own words. But you were saying e-commerce, as we know it today, is broadly accepted as less profitable than your retail store. The store is king. And in a way, that kind of mirrors what's going on with D2C, because in many cases, D2C looks like it's less profitable than wholesale channels. Exactly. We went through this 10, 15 years ago. Right? When e-commerce came out, everyone knew, like we knew that e-commerce was going to be a profit enhancer. It was going to be great for the entire retail ecosystem. Why? Because there's no rent and there's no store labor. So it doesn't take any complicated math to know that e-commerce is going to be better. Fast forward and all of a sudden the reality was it didn't happen. So why didn't it happen? Well, there's variable costs, there's fixed costs, there's the idea you pay your rent once and then you get to kind of enjoy the gravy. Whereas for e-commerce, every incremental unit costs you another dollar. Like there was a whole conversation around there that people came around to. I think the same thing is happening right now with direct with D2C versus wholesale. Why is DTC? Obviously, DTC is a better margin. Why? Well, if I'm selling the whole product and I'm not paying someone else to do it, I get the full markup. And at the end of the day, 
that flows through much more powerful than any incremental expense I'm going to have. The problem is that's been the story and the viewpoint for the last 10 years also, and it just hasn't manifested. And I think that's why the same way that we had to internalize the nuance of e-com versus stores, we also have to internalize the nuance of DTC versus wholesale. And that's this really interesting thing. And I, and I think, and, and Julia, you and I have talked about this, I think there's this really interesting point that some people think is irrelevant and others really grab onto, but the digitally native brands that you and I know so well that have done such a nice job disrupting and grabbing a voice and, and telling their story, they pay someone else to tell that story. So this mm-hmm. idea of not having a middleman, right? There's Wholesale is the worst thing a brand could do is to give up apparently their distribution. And yet no one challenges when companies give up or pay someone else to be their marketing agents. Why is that? Why, why are we okay with the notion that I'll pay someone to control my brand storytelling, but I'm terrified of someone actually controlling my brand visualization. I think the point is we should be okay with both as long as they're vetted. We should be okay with both as long as there's a partner. And it's just that interesting cognitive dissonance, I think, speaks to this idea. There's more than just saying DTC good, wholesale bad. So if you're actually drilling down into it, what your team found is that in a way, DTC still does have a middleman because a lot of them are outsourcing their marketing because the efforts you have to put into marketing are enormous to get started if you're going DTC first. Exactly. There is no brand that I know that's 100% vertically integrated, right? If we think about... Lululemon, phenomenal brand, known for being vertically integrated the whole way up and a very large brand. Do they own their factories? The answer is no. So at the end of the day, it's a question of what you're willing to outsource, who you view as being a good partner. And I think that's very important. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's a point that wholesale, it begs the question, are brands that are walking away from wholesale actually signaling that they believe their wholesale channel has matured rather than is their wholesale channel bad? And I think it's an interesting signal about levels and company sizes and maturity and life cycles. And I think it raises a lot of interesting questions along those lines. But yes, 100%, you are absolutely correct. Every company has middle people. Mm -hmm. And it's more of a question, like you said, you should be asking, and for our listeners who are in retail, what are you willing to outsource? That's probably the more important question than am I keeping up? Am I doing what my competitors are doing? Because maybe it's not the right decision for some brands. A hundred percent. I think you said that perfectly. I think that... And across the board, right? Because it's not just channel. It's not just marketing. It's every part. It's do you own the fabric or are you a great storyteller? Like know your strengths, but recognize that there's some partners that are very, very powerful. And I think what's interesting, I think there's this notion that department stores are bad because we constantly hear about them being knocked down in the news and the results and what's their reason for being. And listen, we we can, that's, that's, that's another whole conversation you and I can have. But what Mm -hmm. we do know without deciding our department store is good or bad or, or for themselves, We know that their gross margins are among the lowest in the business. What does that mean? That means they actually are not that expensive of a middle person, right? If their gross margins are bad or low, then the companies that are selling to them are seeing that benefit. And Mm -hmm. so the question you have to ask is, you have an internal sales force if you're a brand. So here's an external sales force. And here's one that's doing it for you in real life, on their floor, with traffic, So it's this thought process of actually digging into the numbers. And by no means am I saying every brand should embrace every department store partner. But I think to your point of ask what you're good at, what someone else is better at, where can you create a symbiotic relationship? That's what retail has. Retail has always been an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. The notion of going direct makes it a singular party. And that's where you get dangerous. That's where you start drinking your own Kool-Aid. And that's where I think sometimes the numbers can tell you a story that the stories maybe don't. Absolutely. And I want to just take a step back and ask you, you know, you're a really smart guy. And this is what you 
look at all day long. And if you look at something like Warby Parker compared to Nike and how they started and where they are today, what are some things you would point out? Because obviously, and no no hate at all to Warby Parker. I've interviewed Dave Gilboa. I, I think it's a great brand. They have amazing AR in app, by the way. It's, it's incredible. But they took so long for their numbers to come up to a respectable... They're not profitable, right? <laughs> so, so I so I say what I'm about to say, prefacing with the fact that I'm wearing a pair and without exaggerating, staring at four different Warby Parker packet uh, cases on my desk. So, Amazing. so I am I am I've been there for a while. I am exactly watching the process as both a user and as an analyst. I think it's very important, and and to use your terminology, no disrespect or no knock on Warby to the comment I'm going to make. Nike generates whether it's Warby's or, or any of the other digitally native brands revenues, their annual revenues, Nike generates them in moments, right? The scale of comparison on a number basis is meaningful. And that doesn't mean these brands can't grow in. I mean, I don't, I don't there's no brand that has grown into the size of Nike. So I think that that's a pretty high hurdle. But what I like to remind myself, because I do have four Warby's on my desk, I like to remind myself and create guardrails for myself that we live in certain bubbles. We live in certain insulated categories. TAMs and audience sizes are very specific to specific companies. And at the end of the day, what we know is that revenues are a measure of customer buy-in. Gross margin is a measure of external brand perception. So Mm. at the end of the day, the revenue that a company puts out is the best indication of where they are right now. Doesn't mean they can't grow. But to your point, tracking where they've been historically is helpful. And so when I think about that, and, and this makes me think about the fact that at the beginning of the pandemic, right, L Brands owned, owned Victoria's Secret and Bath and Body Works. Now it's split off. But at the time, L Brands was the best performing stock in the S&P or, or one of in 2020. Uh, let's assume it's somewhere around there. I'll fact check this later. But, but they were phenomenally productive stock. And at the beginning of the pandemic, every single article read Victoria's Secret's a dead brand. Mm-hmm. That was very interesting to me because Victoria's Secret at the time was still selling over $3 billion of lingerie, was selling over $2 billion of pink, had another billion dollars of beauty. So we're talking about a business that was selling $5 billion worth of effectively cloth that was being called dead. That doesn't make sense. Now, the gross margin, they weren't making any money on that. So you had this customer buy-in, but brand perception was effectively in, in the gutter. So the answer there, the reason this stock ended up being such a strong performer was that they internalized, before we started talking about supply chain issues, they internalized that they had to sell less and charge more. They, they bought inventory down 50%, 5-0, well before anyone heard about supply chain constraints because they realized that people like me and, and Wall Street and stakeholders and, and everywhere and, and the media said grow for growth's sake for so long. So you had this internal flip to say, you know what, let's focus on profits. Let's actually grow a healthy business, even if it means selling to fewer people. And so I think, and that's where I come to this, like Nike is the only business. My, my team has done a lot of work around brand, where brands peak and ceilings and revenues. And, and we have found that there are brand ceilings. You, we know in fashion, ubiquity is not cool. Uniformity is not a good thing. You had a certain level of unit versus price velocity saturation where you no longer sell something else unless you promote it. And that just brings your price down, which ultimately is a kind of a negative flywheel. Mm-hmm. So Nike, yeah, right. And like the, the ability to sell logo Oreos is a very powerful thing. How many can you sell is the other question. 
So Nike doesn't fit on this scale. Nike is the only company that can have a $400 LeBron drop and sell half a billion pairs of $50 Roshis, right? They're the only one that has figured that out sustainably. Ralph did it for a very long time and then it caught up. That question, I think, goes back to your point earlier to a, to a different question, which I think was spot on. You, got, you have to know who you are. You have to know who your audience is. You have to know what you want to be when you grow up. And if your audience is appealing to buy coastal, however, whatever the income demographic you're targeting is, and more fashion edgy, then that's who you're going to be. And you're not going to, you're going to have a constrained TAM. If you're going to be selling into the department stores and off prices, it's just different TAM. It's not right or wrong. It's just knowing who you are and who you should be and not ultimately drinking that Kool-Aid. Yeah, and that's that's a great way to put it. And it's a important factor to look at as more and more brands begin opening these D2C channels. I mean, I'll just mention there was one story we covered, I think, in 2020 where Pepsi had a direct-to-consumer website, and it looked like it was from 1995. <laughs> uh, and we questioned why it was up there. I mean, it looked like it was frozen in time, and they were like, okay, yeah, let's make the page live. And I doubt it got sales. It's just incredible. Um, so really interesting comments there. But in your opinion, Simeon, is there a way to do D2C that's sustainable when it comes to growth? It's a really interesting question. It's a really important question. The interesting outlier that we found while putting together this report was that the more profitable you are as a business, the higher your margin on a rate basis, like objectively, the higher your margin, if it's above 20, 30%, the more beneficial direct is. That I don't know that whether that's prescriptive or whether that's just simply a fact that I can point out. Like I don't know if I can tell someone my advice is be more profitable because what do you do with that? But if you're inherently, if you're lucky enough to be an incredibly high margin business, if you're a luxury business, the simple math of it works out that direct actually is either less bad or actually beneficial. There were a few companies that we saw that had that. So if your margin, if your gross margin or your product margin is so high that all the OPEX that flows down below it is less impactful, then you will benefit by being a direct And business. yet, Simeon, luxury goods and luxury as a subcategory of retail was probably the slowest to adopt e-commerce except for grocery. I mean, it's it doesn't operate like that. Luxury is all about in-person, touching, feeling, having that shopper experience that's really catered to you. Absolutely. And sorry, just to be clear, when I, that point was DTC as a whole as a channel. So that was both online and store. So it's the idea mm -hmm. of rather than versus wholesale, but because you're absolutely right, right? The idea of maintaining, and, and that's part of, part, of it, part of this, right? It's maintaining control. As you go online, sure. you're involving another partner. So I think that this idea of DTC as a channel versus wholesale as a channel, the more the higher your margin is, the less this math holds, but it has to be a high margin. That bar is high. It's above 25%. Like that's, that's generally what we saw. The second half though, like in terms of thinking through for those that don't have the luxury of just saying, okay, I want to be more profitable from therefore I shall, the answer is to look at DTC as part of your proposition. It's not to be, this is good and wholesale is bad. It's to look at what the benefits are. The benefits are exactly what you started with. With direct, I can be closer to my customer. I can be closer to the data. I'm not going to control the data. I don't think we should be, uh, I don't think we should fool ourselves into believing that the customer isn't going to own their data. The question is what they're willing to share with us, but being direct allows you to be closer to that. And it allows you to elevate your brand image. I think the key, though, is recognizing that all the brands that are very openly discussing the push to direct because of those reasons have to internalize that if you give up the unit volume that you got at wholesale, that becomes a profit inhibitor. What's very interesting to me is the pushback we've got. And I, listen, it's, it's not a good report if there's not pushback, right? There should be. This should be a debate. And so the biggest pushback I get is exactly that point. Like you're just not getting it, Simeon. 
we want the data. The data is valuable. And my and I don't disagree with that. But the problem is I, I can be very opinionated, which means I can be very wrong, right? I know that there's plenty of people that are a lot smarter than I am. This report is actually very has very few opinions. It's it's empirical. It's data-based. And the math argues that whatever the value of owning your customer's data is, isn't flowing through to your profit line as a company. And so this idea of, of forests and trees and nuance and, and expectations of, obviously, my DTC is going to be higher margin than wholesale because I'm selling it at a higher markup, the same way that obviously my e-com is going to be better for the business because there's no store labor and store rent. What I try to remind myself is anytime the word obviously shows up in a conversation about retail, chances are you should dig deeper and it's probably the opposite. And I say that mm-hmm. a little bit facetiously, but but it's an important lesson. It's just it's the obvious answer is normally our consumer hat answer rather than our operational or analytical hat answer. Yeah. And so what to do with DTC? Include it as part of your business, but include it as part of your business, not the entire. You still need the unit velocity that you get from hiring a, a low-cost distributor, which we know is wholesale. And we've seen that with a lot of the really successful D2C-first brands that now have stores are in, and are in wholesale channels. Exactly. And it's really interesting. If any of you are listening, this report actually talks about you guys have a working template for this model. And it says, let us know if you'd like it. So is that something people can get a hold of? Yeah, absolutely. Feel free. Listen, I'm... Uh... Like I said, I, I like healthy debate. So whether whether it's something that you think makes a ton of sense and want to talk about it, or whether it's something that you want to lambast me for, I mean, by all means, I, I'm fairly easily accessible. So uh, please feel free to reach out. Absolutely. And I, I love that, that you guys are offering that. And where can someone listening download a copy of the BMO report? So that you'll have to come to me for. Um, but but I would say LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to to find me. E- easy enough to find. There aren't that many Simeon Seagulls, for better or worse. <laughs> I love that, for better or worse. Awesome. Well, thank you, Simeon and Seagull. It was amazing to have you on the show today. As I said, super smart analysis and and love hearing your perspective. It's a fresh one. That's what we want. It is great to be here. Always great to chat. And like I said, next time I'm looking forward to coming on as my friend, Simeon. You've been listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. If you would like to be considered as a guest on our show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. For sponsorship opportunities, send us an email at media at rethink.industries. You can help support our team at Rethink Retail by dropping us a rating and review on your iTunes podcast app. To each and every one of you, thanks so much for tuning in. Retail never sleeps. See you next week.